Let's go. Commanding you to bow down. I'm on your side. By branding you as a rebel. But you're not. A traitor. This isn't freedom. This is fear. are not the government. The government is not us. This is Deep of Files. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Dean O Files. This is episode number 113, and uh, we're recording on this Tuesday morning, October the 5th, 2021. Oh, feels good to be doing a show again. (laughs) Um, It's been actually almost a year since the show went on a relative hiatus. Uh... For a number of reasons, I said I would explain, and I shall. Um, so initially, I just got busy with law school, and then COVID got COVID killed the news, <laughs> and it became really difficult to do a news show. And I just I couldn't keep doing that on top of a couple of other things. And then uh, I had some family members who passed uh, in relatively rapid succession, and I was constantly traveling in order to, uh, go to funerals and, and things like that, and honestly see my family. (laughs) Uh, I started spending half my time away from the house to, to spend time at my girlfriend's place. There are a number of reasons, uh, some of which are pretty good (laughs) reasons, that the show, uh, hasn't been around for a while, but uh, I'm back. I got moved. I should have a little more time to actually do the show. So I'm 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 excited to be back. Um, one thing I'm going to be doing, just kind of on a house cleaning sort of note, one thing I'm going to be doing is I am going to get rid of the support channels as they exist now and sort of rebuild some stuff. I I want to I want to rebuild the way that I do a lot of things and so that's going to take some time and some work, but I uh I I'm I'm going to be working on that slowly. Let's uh let's get into some news. Um cuz that's ultimately what you're here for, right? From the fire in an early test of Mahanoi, 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 I've always had a hard time with that word. In, the, in an early test of Mahanoi, Fire files amicus brief depending, uh, defending high schoolers off-campus Snapchat joke. In June, the Supreme Court explained in Mahanoi Area School District VBL that courts should be skeptical when public grade schools attempt to regulate off-campus speech. Now, this was the case, <clears throat> in case you've forgotten, this was the case where the uh, girl high school student said, I believe she posted a snap saying, like, fuck cheer and fuck school or something like that. And she had, uh, they, there was disciplinary action against her. That case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the court said, no, you can't fucking do that. Uh, you're, that's off-campus speech. It was on Snapchat. And, and she's allowed to say what she wants. Uh, let's go to the actual story of the current case. On the night of Friday, September 13th, 2019, a Cherry Creek High School student referred to in court documents only as CG. Uh, took a picture of three of his friends at a thrift store while they sported headwear, including a hat that to him resembled a uh, foreign military garb, circle World War II. Uh, posting the photo on Snapchat for a circle of friends, CG added a caption based on the po- popular online meme, quote, me and the boys about to exterminate the Jews. <laughs> there's a, the funny thing about this is there's, um, there's three, the, the picture of the photo is here, a picture of the picture is, here the dude in the middle is a relatively dark black guy (laughs) um cg removed the post apologize online with a few hours i'm sorry for that picture it was uh it was meant to be a joke 
But not before a classmate who saw the photo showed it to her father, who called the police, and then responded to CG's house and determined there was no threat against anyone. No fucking joke. I'm calling the police! When officials at Cherry Creek got wind that members of the local community had taken offense to the post, they suspended CG for five days, then another five, then an additional 11 days, before ultimately expelling him for a full year. When CG and his parents later sued, the district court dismissed the complaint, ruling there was no First Amendment or due process violation as a matter of law, which is insane. <sighs> anyway, this case is, uh, boy howdy. I'm, I, that dismissal has been appealed, uh, to the, uh, the 10th Circuit. Uh, in our brief, uh, from the story, in our brief, Fire advised the 10th Circuit panel that allowing the decision below to stand will only worsen the problem of censorship in both the K-12 through and collegiate context by ratifying an impermissible heckler's veto. Um, let's move on to the next one. Oh, I'm sorry, that last story, I'm not really, uh, I'm not back in the swing of exactly, uh, September 21st, 2021 was when that last story was published. This story, published October 1st, 2021, a federal court held that a police department's use of Facebook content filters violated the First Amendment. Public colleges could be next. A federal court held yesterday that a police department's use of Facebook's content filtering tools violated the First Amendment. The ruling could impact how public colleges and universities regulate online speech as well. The United States District Court for the Eastern District of Arkansas ruled that Arkansas State Police unlawfully used Facebook's content moderation tools to censor speech on the department's Facebook page. The agency set Facebook's profanity filter, which deletes comments if they contain certain objectionable words, to the strongest available setting and blacklisted a custom set of words they selected, including pig, copper, and jerk. Quote, but people are free to say those words, wrote Chief United States District Judge D.P. Marshall Jr. in the court's opinion. Quote, the First Amendment protects disrespectful language. That's why government actors like public universities act unlawfully when they create public forums for speech on platforms like Facebook and Twitter only to employ filters and other similar features that censor content or block certain users. The Arkansas court's reasoning about the actions of its state police mirrors concerns fire raised after surveying the use of some tools of the same tools, I'm sorry, by public universities. Uh, they go on to talk about their report, but this, this kind of follows in a string of cases which have effectively determined that a state actor using social media is bound by the First Amendment on social media. Uh, there was, uh, there was the blocking case, um, where, uh, uh, people had been blocked by state actors. I believe Donald Trump was one account, and they... The courts uh, came down and said, no, you, you don't get to do that. Just because you're on social media doesn't mean you're no longer a state actor, and you have to respect the First Amendment even on social media, which I think is perfectly reasonable. Uh, moving on from uh, Reason, the Volk Conspiracy. This is the law blog on Volk. This is more of a, you know what? I'm going to turn this into an interesting article thing. I'm going to link this at the top of the show notes. Because it's a, it's long. It's written by Josh Blackman, uh, the attorney for Defense Distributed. Um, but it's and he writes for Vulcan Conspiracy all the time. But this is a sort of a look ahead at the October term of the Supreme Court. I'll just uh, read kind of the beginning here. With Dobbs on the docket, the Supreme Court is under a full court press. Much of this pressure will come from the left, though I have long suspected that elements of the conservative legal movement. We'll also urge the court to pump its brakes. An amicus brief from Judge Ludwig was an uh, intri- oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. An amicus brief from Judge Ludwig was an entreaty in New York State Rifle and Pistol. This brief was arguably useful because a conservative who ostensibly supports gun rights urges the court to uphold the gun control law. Of course, if the author in fact supports gun control as a policy matter, the utility of the brief is diminished. Um, yada yada yada. This is this is a break down a look ahead at the October term for the Supreme Court. I am, yeah, I'm just going to link that as an interesting article. But I will take this opportunity, based upon that story, to go to time.com, which I usually don't consult, uh, but there is a write-up on time of uh, some cases that are coming up in the Supreme Court that I think are going to be pretty interesting. Um, yes, I'm talking about this. Uh, <laughs> Because Not only because I have plans to do more shows that are kind of similar to the privacy show that I did. In fact, I'm working on one for the Second Amendment right now. Um, but 
because this case is being heard by the Supreme Court, I am delayed. I'm, what I'm probably going to do is record all of it, and then when the Supreme Court releases its opinion in this upcoming case, uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol, I will uh, append that to the end and push it out as soon as possible. I think that'll be how I handle that. Uh, but that's just kind of a, a look ahead. From time, major Supreme Court cases to watch this fall. This was published uh, September 28, 2020, but it a lot of these were pushed back. Several of these are on the docket. Uh, abortion access, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. Dobbs is the case. Well, let me just read their little paragraph here. Dobbs, which would determine whether the Supreme Court will go against decades of precedent and overturn 1973's Roe v. Wade, which established the constitutional right to end a pregnancy before a fetus can survive outside the womb. That's called viability. Um, I said that's called viability. They weren't specific enough for that. I don't know why. The case centers on a Mississippi law that bans abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy before viability, except in instances of medical emergencies or fetal abnormalities. Uh, in, its, uh, in its merits brief, the state of Mississippi explicitly asked the Supreme Court to overturn its rulings in Roe and 1992's Planned Parenthood of Southeastern PAVKC which established that laws cannot place an undue burden on a person's ability to seek an abortion. This, I don't like how this is written. That's a Casey standard. The, the undue burden standard comes from Casey. I want to break this down, actually, a little bit, and I'll probably talk about SB8, too. Uh, I, I wasn't going to do this, but now I'm going to. Um, so, Roe v. Wade, what is described as the central holding of Roe v. Wade, is the right to an abortion before viability. And viability is that time at which a fetus could survive outside the womb. What survive means, as far as I know, and I could be wrong about this, this could have been written about in places, but um, as far as I know, as far as the Supreme Court's concerned, what survive means is undetermined. It, I don't think it means survive without help, but, uh, or without assistance. But the central holding of Roe v. Wade is access to abortion uh, before viability, the right to an abortion before viability. Then, Planned Parenthood stepped in it, <clears throat> and I might talk about this later on, actually. Uh, I need to do a show about this. Uh, anyway, Planned Parenthood stepped in and screwed up in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And what was established as a result of Planned Parenthood v. Casey was they upheld the central holding of Roe v. Wade, because they always do, but they replaced... Or, or, or invented the legal test that we use to actually uh, adjudicate abortion laws. The legal test is the undue burden test, the undue burden standard, whether or not something places an undue burden on someone seeking access to an abortion. This is a balancing test, <clears throat> which means that the interests of the state and the interests of the individual are weighed against one another, and whether the burden is undue is up to the judges at the time. I hate balancing tests. I hate balancing tests because they're not rules. They're not clear rules. They are... The, the, the primary reason that I hate them is because they are... Uh, they can be weaponized. They could be weaponized by both sides of the legal argument, whether it's abortion or anything else. If you have a balancing test in place, either side, if they get enough sway on the court, can weaponize that kind of test. And it fucks with law down the road because then people are making decisions based on shitty opinions. And it's just, it's garbage. I hate, I hate Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Uh, the undue burden test is bullshit. But when people say overturn Roe v. Wade, what they're actually saying is overturn Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Unless they're talking about the central holding of Roe v. Wade, which is the right to an abortion before viability. In a recent case, and I always forget which one it was because there were two abortion cases that were pretty close together. It might have been Whole Women's Health. I don't think, I don't think it was Whole Women's Health v. Hellerstedt. I think it was something else. Uh, anyway, John Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts, sort of previewed a return to Roe v. Wade and overturning Casey in his concurrence in that case. My suspicion with Dobbs, this upcoming case, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, my suspicion with Dobbs is that the court overturns Casey, gets rid of the undue burden standard, and returns to the viability standard. That there is a basically unfettered right to abortion before viability. That's my suspicion with what the Supreme Court does here in Dobbs. Now, there's another wrinkle to this, which is SB8 in Texas. Texas uh, SB8 
is a law which creates a civil cause of action for anyone to sue anyone who uh, aids or abets in the procurement of an abortion after there is a fetal heartbeat, which is generally uh, six weeks. That's why it's called a six-week abortion ban, is because that's, that's generally the point at which you can detect a fetal heartbeat. The, <clears throat> the, the bill invents this cause of action out of whole cloth, and it's, it's stupid. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. You cannot just invent a cause of action for someone exercising a constitutional right. And whether or not you agree that abortion should be a right, it is, by law, a constitutional right. I don't care what your argument against that statement is, you're wrong. We can disagree, or agree, as the case may be, about whether or not abortion should be a constitutional right, but it is a constitutional right. And if you think, if you think that California or New York aren't going to use this same thing, this same legal standard, this same idea, to create a cause of action for somebody selling a firearm, or owning a firearm, or owning a firearm while having a child in the house, for example. You're crazy. They are absolutely going to do that. I see all these people in anti-abortion libertarians <clears throat> whose philosophy I understand. I can't say I agree across the board, but the, the libertarian position that a the, the libertarian position that a fetus is a human being that has a right to, that has inalienable rights to itself is a perfectly consistent uh, position that I absolutely understand and identify with. But I'm seeing people supporting SBA, and I'm thinking, you people are idiots. If you think the legal regime set out in SBA won't be used against you, you're crazy. In any case, the invention of a civil cause of action for exercising a constitutional right. That's what SBA stands for. That's the proposition SBA stands for. If you think that's not going to be used against you, you're crazy. Uh, so stop supporting SBA. Anyway, as I said, my, my, uh, my presumption, my, my assumption, my guess about what the court's going to do in Dobbs is that they're going to overturn Casey and return to, and return to Roe and uh, effectively set a viability standard across the board. That'll be the rule. And then the conservatives can be happy when in 20 years, viability's been pushed back 10 weeks. <laughs> like... Because that's the march of medical science. In any case, uh, there's another case, a gun rights case, New York State Rifle and Pistol v. Bruin. Uh, this challenge is a New York State law that requires anyone who wants a concealed carry permit to first prove to the licensing authority that they have good reason for carrying the weapon, which can include self-defense. The case was filed by two New York men with the backing of a gun rights group after their applications were rejected because the licensing officer determined they had not adequately proven they needed to carry the weapons. This is an interesting case. There are, there are similar cases. Actually, DCV Heller is kind of, uh, you know, directly similar to this. But <sighs> the Second Amendment is, is, is very complex. There was a recent California uh, determination out of uh, a California Federal District Court, I think, which attempted to overturn California's... Uh, magazine uh magazine capacity bans and things of this nature and i did a whole twitter thread on that that basically explained how the legal test for the second amendment works it's entirely broken it's stupid and it's bad the test for the second amendment that's used by the courts is an absolute mess it is contrary to heller it is contrary to what scalia wrote in heller as a response to i believe brennan or Breyer, I can't remember who it was, who, who wrote that we should have a balancing test. And Scalia wrote in the majority opinion that, no, we're not going to have a balancing test for this. We're not going to have a balancing test for a constitutional right that's enumerated. That's ridiculous. And what has occurred is that the, the circuit courts have basically invented a balancing test. And they all kind of do it in a, in a similar way. So the Second Amendment's uh, jurisprudence is fucked. There's a chance here that the court can actually lay out a real test or a real rule for the Second Amendment. I'm, I'm very excited to see where this goes. The Supreme Court hates Second Amendment cases. Hates them. So they basically left the, the circuit courts up to their own devices. 
to try and uh, to try and handle that on their own. Uh, separation of church and state. On December 8th, the court will hear Carson v. Macon, a case that can have an enormous impact on whether religious institutions can benefit from state funding. Carson deals with a state-backed tuition program in Maine, which grants tuition assistance to families in areas without public high schools so they can instead send their kids to a private school. Two families, the Carsons and Nelson, sued uh, the state in 2018 after they were denied tuition assistance because they planned to use to pay for Christian private schools and could use the funding uh, for religious instruction. I don't think this case stands. I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but I think, uh, I think the families win. If I had to make a guess. The case comes on the back of 2020's Espinosa v. Montana Department of Revenue, in which the court ruled 5-4 that tax credit-funded scholarships meant to help students attend private schools cannot exclude religious institutions simply because they are religious. Yeah, so those families are going to win that. Uh, state secrets. This is a big one. The court ruled two cases this term dealing with the federal government's right to invoke its state secrets privilege, which allows the government to refuse to release information in litigation if doing so poses a risk to national security. On October 6th, the court will hear United States v. Zabeda, uh, I believe is how you pronounce that. The first case is heard dealing with Guantanamo Bay detainees in over a decade. The case was brought by Zain al-Ibidin uh, al Mohammed Hussein, but spelled interestingly. Also known as, uh, fuck. Also known as Abu Zabeda, who has been de uh, detained in Guantanamo Bay since 2016, I'm sorry, since 2006 and wants to subpoena CIA contractors in criminal investigation. Prior to his detention in the U.S. military prison, uh, Zabeda was held in several CIA black sites in foreign countries subjected to what the CIA referred to as enhanced interrogation. In 2017, he attempted to subpoena two CIA contractors who he argues knew about his detention and treatment in the early 2000s for a criminal, investiga uh, criminal investigation in Poland, where he was held in 2002 and 2003, but the federal government stepped in and told the district court to kill the subpoena, citing state secrets privileges. After that, November 8th, the court will hear Federal Bureau of Investigation B. Uh, uh, Fazaga, which also deals with questions of when the government can withhold information. The suit was first brought in 2011 by Imam Yasir Fazaga to uh, Muslim congregates at a California mosque that the FBI had an informant infiltrate in the mid-2000s. Fazaga and the congregates have sued the FBI with the help of the Council on America's Islamic Relations and the ACLU, who alleged the FBI targeted them based on their religious identity. The FBI argues that aspects of the investigation are state secrets and the case cannot be litigated without risking national security. Yada, yada, yada. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess the cops will win on that one. A couple of death penalty cases. One for uh, uh, Zokar Tsarnaev, actually. Uh, sentenced to death in 2015 for his part in the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing, which killed three people and injured hundreds in 2020. The First Circuit converted his death sentence to life without parole, citing constitutional violations during his trial. And the Supreme Court will now determine whether the death sentence should be reimposed. Uh, on November 1st, the court will hear the case of Shin v. Ramirez, a procedurally complicated case that could have important implications for how federal courts approach the right to counsel. Death row prisoners in Arizona uh, filed for habeas relief in federal court, arguing that they had ineffective counsel during their original trials and should not be executed. The point was never raised by their attorneys at the state post-conviction level. The prisoners now argue it should be allowed to be raised in federal court. This is an interesting thing, because procedurally... If you are alleging ineffective assistance of counsel and the issue wasn't raised in your appeal, if it's the same counsel, then they might be ineffective. This is one of those things. When an ineffective assistance of counsel defense can be raised, not defense, but uh, uh, argument, can be raised is, is kind of an interesting procedural thing. But generally, the general rule is if you don't raise it on appeal, you can't raise it at your next level of appeal. So, anyway. Next, the court will hear the case of Ramirez v. Collier, which was taken up by the Supreme Court on September 8th after agreed to stay the execution of John Ramirez scheduled for later that night. Ramirez asked that his Baptist pastor be allowed to lay hands on him and pray out loud while he was being executed by the state of Texas. Texas rejected the request, and Ramirez filed suit in federal court in August on religious freedom grounds. The district court and the appeals court declined to halt his execution, but the Supreme Court agreed to do so until it could evaluate his claims. Uh, so that's an interesting one. I imagine he wins on that. That seems like a religious issue, and the court's been weirdly uh, nice to death row people recently. Um, there was a, a case recently where the court uh, decided that, no, nah, you, can't, you can't sentence someone to death without, I think it was a unanimous jury you have to have to sentence someone to death. I might be wrong about that, but I think that's how that case turned out. In related news, Justice Sonia Sotomayor. So, 
A lot of people hate Justice Sonia Sotomayor, and there's a lot about Justice Sotomayor that I personally really do not like. But if you're going up against a cop, there's nobody, nobody else you'd want on the court. Justice Sonia Sotomayor is so good on restricting police powers. And this is just another example of that. Posted on the 4th of October to reason a cop killed a suicidal man, he got qualified immunity. Justice Sotomayor isn't happy about it. The Supreme Court, uh, I'm sorry, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor is reiterating her disdain for qualified immunity, a legal doctrine that protects certain government officials from accountability decades after the high court legislated it into existence. That's not exactly how that went. Um, It wasn't really legislated into existence. It was an application of an existing doctrine. It was an application of sovereign immunity to Section 1983 civil rights claims. It wasn't exactly legislated into existence. It, it was just an application of pre-existing doctrine. Now, whether or not you think that doctrine should have applied is another question entirely. I think it probably should not have. I don't know why the legislature would make Section 1983 and then say, but you can't sue anybody under it. That's insane. But regardless... Uh, in the court's orders released Monday, Sotomayor objected to her colleague's refusal to hear a plea brought by the family of a man killed by a police officer. The man, quote, never threatened the officer, Sotomayor notes, and in that moment arguably presented a danger only to himself. The cop got qualified immunity anyway. Quote, I will add only that qualified immunity it properly shields police officers from liability when they act reasonably to protect themselves in the public, she wrote. It, quote, it does not protect an officer who inflicts deadly force on a person who is only a threat to himself. Though the stereotype is that such decisions are decided along ideological lines, Sotomayor was alone today. She is not alone, however, in her disdain for qualified immunity. Justice Clarence Thomas is the most reliably outspoken detractor. So yeah, as much as you want to hate Sotomayor, and there are issues I have with Sotomayor as well, if it's a Fourth Amendment question, if it's a qualified immunity question, she's good on it. She's really good on it. Also, from reason, 55% of police killings are misclassified as other causes of death. Here you go. This is written by Elizabeth Nolan Brown, posted on the 1st of October. More than half of police killings aren't labeled as such. <laughs> According to new research published in The Lancet, the study looks at roughly 40 years of fatal police violence in the U.S. The main finding, deaths caused by cops are severely underreported in official data. To reach this conclusion, researchers compared statistics from the government's National Vital Statistics uh, System with open-source databases from the nonprofit group's uh, Fatal Encounters, Mapping Police Violence, and The Counted. The NVSS data left off 55.5% of all deaths attributable to police violence between 1980 and 2018, the researchers found. Overall, the misclassification of police violence in NVSS data is extensive. A holistic, a holistic look shows there were... Uh, 30,800 deaths caused by police during these decades. Quote, this represents 17,000 more, uh, 17,100 more deaths than reported by the NVSS, they say. To put that in perspective, they note that in 2019, more U.S. men died from police violence, 1,140 deaths, than from environmental uh, heat and cold exposure, 931 deaths, testicular cancer, 486 deaths, or STDs, 37 deaths. Non-Hispanic black people were most likely to be killed by police. Uh, quote, the police have disproportionately killed black people at a rate of three to five times higher than white people and have killed Hispanic and indigenous people disproportionately as well. Notes the paper. Their deaths were also most likely to be missing from the official database. From 1980, uh, quote, from 1980 to 2018, the greatest underreporting of deaths was among non-Hispanic black people with 5,670 deaths uh, missing out of an estimated 9,540 total deaths. That's 59.5% misclassified. The data suggests more police killings in recent years and in the early years of the study, though whether this is a function of better tracking or increased violence is unclear. In the 1980s, the mortality rate of police violence was 0.25 per uh, 100,000 people. In the 2010s, it was 0.34 per 100,000 people, an increase of 38.4% over the study period. I, I just found that fascinating. There's more to this. But I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to finish the rest of this because I want to move on. <sighs> Facebook. I fucking hate Facebook. Everybody fucking hates Facebook. But for some reason there are still people on that godforsaken website. There was a whistleblower recently who filed a complaint with the SEC about Facebook. She worked there 
She's a Harvard grad, which means she might be a spook. I'm actually not sure. They tend to come from Yale, but I'm not sure. And, well, I have... There was a... Uh, there was a she came out in the Washington Post with this big trove of documents. And they published it. And, like, a month later, just the day before yesterday, so that would have been on the 3rd, she did an interview that ran on 60 Minutes, the entirety of which uh, we're going to listen to. And because I find it fascinating, and also because I have a few things to say, uh, with the way that some of this stuff is framed, it's, it's actually very, very interesting. Now, this is mainstream news, man. This is 60 Minutes, right? This is what grandma's watching. This is what your parents are watching. This is what your next-door neighbor's watching, right? This is mainstream news. It's number three trending on, on YouTube. Huge, huge, this interview. So let's figure out what this Facebook whistleblower has to say. Her name is Frances Haugen. That is a fact that Facebook has been anxious to know since last month when an anonymous former employee filed complaints with federal law enforcement. The complaints say Facebook's own research shows that it amplifies hate, misinformation, and political unrest, but the company hides what it knows. One complaint alleges that Facebook's Instagram harms teenage girls. What makes Haugen's complaints unprecedented is the trove of private Facebook research she took when she quit in May. The documents appeared first last month in the Wall Street Journal, but tonight, Frances Haugen is revealing her identity to explain why she became the Facebook whistleblower. The story will continue in a moment. The thing I saw at Facebook over and over again was there were conflicts of interest between what was good for the public and what was good for Facebook. And Facebook over and over again chose to optimize for its own interests, like making more money. Frances Haugen is 37, a data scientist from Iowa, with a degree in computer engineering and a Harvard master's degree in business. For 15 years, she's worked for companies including Google and Pinterest. I've seen a bunch of social networks and it was substantially worse at Facebook than anything I'd seen before. You know, someone else might have just quit and moved on. And I wonder why you take this stand. Imagine you know what's going on inside of Facebook and you know no one on the outside knows. I knew what my future looked like if I continued to stay inside of Facebook, which is person after person after person has tackled this inside of Facebook and ground themselves to the ground. When and how did it occur to you to take all of these documents out of the company? At some point in 2021, I realized, okay, I'm going to have to do this in a systemic way, and I have to get out enough that no one can question that this is real. She secretly copied tens of thousands of pages of Facebook. This is produced in an interesting way. They have her sitting at this table, like, with a bunch of printouts in front of her, but it looks like printouts of just, like, black and white photos, and she's just flipping pages loose pages that are for they're not bound in anything there's not a, a clip on them this is obvious set dressing like it's it's kind of funny actually how weird and off kilter the production is but let's continue book internal research she says evidence shows that the company is lying to the public about making significant progress against hate violence and misinformation Okay, so one of the first things you'll realize is that this is Facebook being attacked from the left. And that's going to become more clear, but I, I find that aspect of this fascinating. And I'm not sure why it's happening this way, but we'll, we'll talk about it. One study she found from this year says, We estimate that we may action as little as 3 to 5% of hate and about six-tenths of one percent of violence and incitement on Facebook, despite being the best in the world at it. To quote from another one of the documents you brought out, we have evidence from a variety of sources that hate speech, divisive political speech, and misinformation on Facebook and the family of apps are affecting societies around the world. When we live in an information environment, that is full of angry, hateful, polarizing content. It erodes our civic trust. It erodes our faith in each other. It erodes our ability to want to care for each other. The version of Facebook that exists today is tearing our societies apart and causing ethnic violence around the world. 
ethnic violence, including Myanmar in 2018, when the military used Facebook to launch a genocide. Uh, the first quarter of 2019. Frances Haugen told us she was recruited by Facebook in 2019. She says she agreed to take the job only if she could work against misinformation because she had lost a friend to online conspiracy theories. I never wanted anyone to feel the pain that I had felt. And I had seen how high the stakes were in terms of making sure there was high quality information on Facebook. At headquarters. Okay, I'm going to reverse it because I'm baffled by this. Let's listen to that again. Conspiracy theories. Hold on. I got to roll it back a little more. I didn't roll it back enough. To take the job only if she could work against misinformation because she had lost a friend to online conspiracy theories. I never wanted anyone to feel the pain that I had felt. And I had seen how high the stakes were in terms of making sure there was high quality information on Facebook. Lost a friend to online conspiracy theories? Did they die? Or did she just stop talking to them? I don't understand. I don't know. <laughs> what does this mean? What does, what the fuck? What does it mean to have lost a friend to online conspiracy theories? I have no, uh, I'm. I'm kind of retarded. I have no idea what it means to have lost a friend to online conspiracy theories. My, my, my presumption is that she just stopped talking to them. That's my, I, I mean, I, I can't think of anything else that would make sense there. I don't know how online conspiracies could kill someone. I don't think they can. So what, what, uh, anyway, anyway, let's keep listening. She was assigned to civic integrity, which worked on risks to elections, including misinformation. But after this past election, there was a turning point. They told us we're dissolving civic integrity. Like they basically said, oh good, we, we made it through the election. There wasn't riots. We can get rid of civic integrity now. Fast forward a couple of months, we got the insurrection. And when they got rid of... That's the, uh, that's the unguided capital tour of January 6th. The big, the, uh, the great unguided boomer con capital tour of January 6th. And when they got rid of civic integrity, it was the moment where I was like, I don't trust that they're willing to actually invest what needs to be invested to keep Facebook from being dangerous. Facebook says the work of civic integrity was distributed to other units. In 2018, Haugen told us the root of Facebook's problem is in a change that it made in 2018 to its algorithms, the programming that decides what you see on your Facebook newsfeed. So, you know, you have your phone, you might see only 100 pieces of content if you sit and scroll off for, you know, five minutes. But Facebook has thousands of options it could show you. The algorithm picks from those options based on the kind of content you've engaged with the most in the past. And one of the consequences of how Facebook is picking out that content today is it is optimizing for content that gets engagement or reaction. But its own research is showing that content that is hateful, that is divisive, that is polarizing, it's easier to inspire people to anger than it is to other emotions. Misinformation, angry content yeah. is enticing to people and keep, keeps them on the platform. Okay, the, the little verbal tricks that are happening here are so fascinating to me. He says misinformation, angry content, as if they're the same, right? So anything that upsets a person is, is to be conflated with misinformation. As opposed to everything that I just read, well, not everything, there were some good stories in here, good news came out, but as opposed to everything, let's look at this story, 55% of police killings, misattributed deaths. Um, that should piss you off, but it's not misinformation, it's not false, it's entirely factual, it's just dark, it's bad. Ah, this... The verbal tricks that are going on throughout this entire thing are just absolutely bonkers to me. Yes. Facebook has realized that if they change the algorithm to be safer, people will spend less time on the site, they'll click on less ads, they'll make less money. 
Safer. What does safer mean? Safer here means happy. Safer means happy. Safer means nobody gets upset. Everyone's optimistic. Everyone, it's safe. It's a safe space for everyone. Fucking garbage. Haugen says Facebook understood the danger to the 2020 election, so it turned on safety systems to reduce misinformation. But many of those changes, she says, were temporary. And as soon as the election was over, they turned them back off, or they changed the settings back to what they were before to prioritize growth over safety. And that really feels like a betrayal of democracy to me. Facebook says some of the safety systems remained, but... Safety! They keep saying it. Safety, safety, safety. And they're, and they're showing pictures throughout this entire thing. They're showing pictures of, like, the January 6th, like, pictures from January 6th of people in MAGA hats uh, taking an unguided tour of the Capitol. Actually, most of the pictures they've shown are people outside the Capitol, because there actually weren't that many people inside. Like, the... the <laughs> oh, God. Facebook says some of the safety systems remained. But after the election, Facebook was used by some to organize the January 6th insurrection. Insurrection! Prosecutors cite Facebook posts as evidence, photos of armed partisans, and text including, by bullet or ballot, restoration of the republic is coming. Extremists used many platforms, but Facebook is... Hold on. They've got these memes, these boomer memes, scrolling by... I just want to look at some of them. I'm going to mute it real quick. Um, okay, so they included the picture that's one of those paintings of George Washington. Like, one of those, you know, those, those overly dramatic paintings where, like, Reagan's on a dinosaur? This is one of George Washington with a minigun and an eagle on his arm. You've probably all seen that picture. It's like, bus trip to D.C. There's, there's one, uh, occupation, uh, Operation Occupy the Capitol. Um, joyandliberty.com can help you, you, you getting, getting to the D.C. rally on January 6th. Uh, a symbol on the Capitol, January 6th. United we stand, go forth and we find uh, people with stop the steel flags. Um, there's just a post, a random post. We're thinking about going to the protest in Washington, D.C. on the 6th. We'll probably go to the rally in Dalton tomorrow night, then to Washington, D.C. the next day to support Trump and put our two cents in. Is anyone else planning on going to the event? Nothing here about an insurrection. Nothing here about a coup. Um, here's one that you could say is, is Occupy Congress. Hashtag Occupy Congress. If they won't hear us, they will fear us. Uh, the great betrayal is... Oh, actually, I really kind of like that. That's a, that's a really good rhyme. If they won't hear us, they will fear us. I like that. There's a picture of, uh, of what looks like... Um, what is that? A, a 762? Uh, a drop of water with an American flag reflected in it. By bullet or by ballot restoration of the Republic is coming. Um, for freedom's sake, form a militia. There's a bunch of boomer memes. Fair warning, if this election is stolen for Biden, patriots will go to war. <laughs> sure you will. Uh, there's a picture of a Confederate flag. Wait a minute, here's one of the gay backgrounds. Um, it's, it's the rainbow flag background with the text on it. Patriots heading to D.C. raise holy hell. It's the only thing that Democrats understand. If you want your country back, show them. I don't understand why they would use the gay pride background. Anyway, I'm going to roll it back so we can continue listening. But these, the, some of these images they're using are ridiculous, and others are just like regular-ass posters. There's a couple of them that are just like, Occupy Congress. If they won't hear us, they'll fear us. But I, I'm just, I mean, that's... That, that would be... Here's the thing. That would absolutely be protected speech, regardless. That is not uh contrary to protected speech it's exactly the kind of thing that is that falls under um falls under what is considered to be protected political speech anyway continue oh i still have it muted here i can fix that there we go Cite facebook posts as evidence photos of armed partisans and text including by bullet or ballot partisans. restoration That's of the republic weird... is coming extremists used many platforms but Facebook is a recurring theme. After the attack, Facebook employees raged on an internal message board copied by Haugen. Haven't we had enough time to figure out how to manage discourse without enabling violence? Manage discourse? We looked for positive comments and found this. I don't think our leadership team ignores data, ignores dissent, ignores truth. But that drew this reply. Welcome to Facebook. 
I see you just joined in November 2020. We have been watching wishy-washy actions of company leadership for years now. Colleagues cannot conscience working for a company that does not do more to mitigate the negative effects of its platform. This is such an interesting thing. This reads like um, when like moderator chats get leaked from Reset Era. Like, like the, the, <sighs> this reads like angry SJW employees, like the Spotify employees when Joe Rogan um, did his, you know, his Alex Jones show and his, what was it, Abigail Schreier when he did that show. And and the the Spotify employees were all in a t- that's this reads exactly like that. These are these are like this reads like the peons at the company being pissed that the company's not woke enough. Anyway. Facebook essentially amplifies the worst of human nature. It's one of these unfortunate consequences. The internet does. Right. No one at Facebook is malevolent, but the incentives are misaligned, right? Like Facebook makes more money when you consume more content. People enjoy engaging with things that elicit an emotional reaction. And the more anger that they get exposed to, the more they interact and more they consume. See, anger being placed opposite safety. Again, it's, it's a continual theme throughout this entire thing. I keep harping on that. But. That dynamic led to a complaint to Facebook by major political parties across Europe. This 2019 internal report obtained by Haugen says that the parties feel strongly that the change to the algorithm has forced them to skew negative in their communications on Facebook, leading them into more extreme policy positions. The European political parties were essentially saying to Facebook, the way you've written your algorithm is changing the way we lead our countries. Yes. You are forcing us to take positions that we don't like, that we know are bad for society. We know if we don't take those positions, we won't win in the marketplace of social media. I have a massive issue with this. Um, what does that mean for you? What does that mean, not just for you, what does that mean? What's the implication of politicians based on that statement? They're going to do things they know are bad if it gets them votes. They're going to do things they know are bad if it gets them likes and shares on Facebook. That's the implication here. That's the larger problem. I don't understand. Evidence of harm, she says, extends to Facebook's Instagram app. One of the Facebook internal studies that you found talks about how Instagram harms teenage girls. Oh, yeah. This is something that's been known forever. But go ahead, regale us. One study says 13.5% of teen girls say Instagram makes thoughts of suicide worse. 17% of teen girls say Instagram makes eating disorders worse. And what's super tragic is Facebook's own research says, as these young women begin to consume this eating disorder content, they get more and more depressed, and it actually makes them use the app more. This is one of the interesting things about this. Uh, I was talking to my girlfriend about this, and she says, yeah, Instagram boosts, like, the kind of content that gets boosted on Instagram is, is straight up pro-anorexic content like it's it's content from anorexic people talking about how good anorexia is bulimia and things of this nature like like this is uh like that's an actual problem that instagram has at the moment and so they end up in this feedback cycle where they hate their bodies more and more facebook's own research says it is not just that instagram is dangerous for teenagers that it harms teenagers is that it is distinctly worse than other forms of social media. Facebook said just last week it would postpone plans to create an Instagram for younger children. That's hilarious to me. They were like, we're going to make an Instagram for the youths. And then this comes out and it's like, never mind. (laughs) Last month, Haugen's lawyers filed at least eight complaints with the Securities and Exchange Commission, which enforces the law in financial markets. The complaints compare the internal research with the company's public face, often that of CEO Mark Zuckerberg, here testifying remotely to Congress last March. We removed content that could lead to imminent real-world harm. We've built an unprecedented third-party fact-checking program. The system isn't perfect. 
but it's the best approach that we've found to address misinformation in line with our country's values. One of Francis Haugen's lawyers is John Tai. He's the founder of a Washington legal group called Whistleblower Aid. What is the legal theory behind going to the SEC? What laws are you alleging have been broken? This is As a publicly traded company, Facebook is required to not lie to its investors or even withhold material information. So the SEC regularly brings enforcement actions alleging that companies like Facebook and others are making material misstatements and omissions that affect investors adversely. One of the things that Facebook might allege is that she stole company documents. The Dodd-Frank Act passed over 10 years ago at this point, created uh, an office of the whistleblower inside the SEC. And one of the provisions of that law says that no company can prohibit its employees from, from communicating with the SEC and sharing internal corporate documents with the SEC. I have a lot of empathy for Mark, and Mark has never set out Mark, to make first a name basis. Platform, but he has allowed choices to be made where the side effects of those choices hateful are that hateful too. polarizing content gets more now, hateful more polarizing reach. content. Facebook declined an interview, but in a written statement to 60 Minutes, it said, Every day, our teams have to balance protecting the right of billions of people to express themselves openly. Okay, I have a problem with this. <laughs> I've made this argument before, but these companies should be held to their word. And if Facebook is going to be saying, the, the director of policy communications at Facebook, Lena uh, uh, Peitch, I think uh, you would pronounce that. If these individuals are going to be saying... Uh, they have to balance protecting the right of billions of people to express themselves openly, then they need to be held to that standard. I'm not necessarily saying legally. I don't think that legal action against uh, censorious social media platforms is a good idea. But they claim that, they're, that they exist to facilitate free expression. If they do, if they claim that, they should be held to that. Civilly? Maybe. Maybe. With the need to keep our platform a safe and positive place, we continue to make significant improvements to tackle the spread of misinformation and harmful content. Okay, again, these verbal tricks. This is this is like neurolinguistic programming. Like legitimately, this is neurolinguistic programming. Okay, the need to keep our platform a safe and positive place. Okay, on the other side of that statement, significant improvements to tackle the spread of misinformation and harmful content harmful content. What does that mean? Who the fuck knows? Misinformation. What's that? Whatever Facebook says it is. And those things are diametrically opposed to safe and positive. So they've been doing things throughout this, this broadcast, and this is the shit, trust me, when I say this shit programs the people that watch it. If you're, if you're sitting there watching this and you're not Thinking critically, if you're in an alpha wave state, just sitting there watching 60 minutes and this starts coming across, your brain will perceive safe and positive as diametrically opposed to misinformation and harmful. Such that when somebody comes out and says a thing is misinformation, like, I don't know, this whole ass show, even though I only read the news, but we know that doesn't matter. When somebody comes out and says that's misinformation, then automatically in your mind, that's not safe, that's harmful, that's not positive, that's dangerous, that's hate. All of these things, all, all of these verbal tricks that are being played truly program people's perceptions. And if you've seen anything over the course of COVID, it's that. To suggest we encourage bad content and do nothing is just not true. If any research had identified an exact solution to these complex challenges, the tech industry, governments, and society would have solved them a long time ago. Facebook is a $1 trillion company. Just 17 years old, it has 2.8 billion users, which is 60% of all internet-connected people on Earth. Frances Haugen plans to testify before Congress this week she believes the federal government should impose regulations. Facebook has demonstrated they cannot act independently. Facebook over and over again has shown it chooses profit over safety. It is subsidizing, it is paying for its profits with our safety. 
I'm hoping that this will have had a big enough impact on the world that they get the fortitude and the motivation to actually go put those regulations into place. You don't want that, Francis. <laughs> Trust me. With some of the conversations that are going on in, in, uh, in Republican halls of government, you do not want them running Facebook. <laughs> you fucking idiot. Um, anyway. Anyway, it's interesting to me. It's interesting that Facebook is being attacked from the left. I saw a headline on Raw Story. I'm not going to read the story because I don't, I don't really give Bannon any credit. But he came out and he was like, well, the whole Francis Haugen is a, is a spook. He said Francis, not a, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say spook. She's a psyop. This whole thing's a psyop to try and uh, undercut MAGA. That's Steve Bannon's thing. And uh, I, don't, I don't give Steve Bannon any credit. I think that's probably bullshit. In fact, the fact that Steve Bannon said it makes me think it's bullshit. Um, but in any case, I'm, 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 this, this begging for regulation of, of Facebook, whether it's from, from the left or from the right, is um, the stupidest thing on the planet. You do not want that. You do not want that. She is currently uh, testifying. It's live on C-SPAN right now. I'm probably going to go back and watch it at some point. But um, it's, uh, I'm, I'm not doing that at the moment because I want to do the show. And if I'd waited until she was done with that, it would have pushed the show back to where I couldn't. I, this probably wouldn't even be coming out this week. So I wanted to get this done. But I'm more interested in following this up with... Now that aired on the 3rd, okay? On the 4th, yesterday. Fascinating. Fascinating problems over at Facebook. This is from the Krebs on Security blog, KrebsOnSecurity.com, posted on the 4th. Facebook and its sister properties, Instagram and WhatsApp, are suffering from ongoing global outages. We don't know yet why this happened, but the how is clear. Earlier this morning, something inside Facebook caused the company to revoke key digital records that tell computers and other internet-enabled devices how to find these destinations online. Doug Mandori is the director of internet analysis at Kentec, a San Francisco-based network monitoring company. And by the way, this doesn't just come from him. This came from multiple sources that this is what happened at Facebook on the 4th. Uh, uh, Mandry said that at approximately 11.39 a.m. Eastern Time today, someone at Facebook caused an update to be made to the company's border gateway protocol, BGP Records. BGP is a mechanism by which the internet service providers of the world share information about which providers are responsible for routing internet traffic to which specific groups of internet addresses. I'm going to simplify that. And in simplifying it, I'm going to make it a little bit inaccurate, but it, it helps to think of it this way. BGP is the Border Gateway Protocol records are the part, of the, the part of Facebook's network that faces the open internet and says, come this way, come this way, come this way. This is how you get here. Come on. Okay? This is also the part of Facebook's network that faces the DNS servers, the domain name service servers. Now, these DNS servers, and I, I likened them to on Twitter, I likened them to your contacts list on your phone. So if you tell your phone, call mom. Mom means nothing to your phone. Your phone talks in phone numbers. So what your phone does is it goes and looks at your contact list. And it says, mom, mom, where's mom? Oh, that's mom. Mom is 8675309. So I'm going to call 8675309. Okay? You telling your phone to call mom is you typing in facebook.com. The phone looking at your contact list is your router or your browser looking at the DNS server saying, I don't talk in Facebook.com, I talk in IP addresses. So I need to find, in these, in these records on this server, I need to find an IP address that matches Facebook.com. And when it does that, that's when it directs you to Facebook, okay? That's how, this is, this, you're, you're in deep internet protocol territory when you start talking about border gateways okay so that is how that's how the internet functions and so what happened at facebook is they effectively revoked the records that tells the dns where to look so as far as the dns servers were concerned facebook didn't exist that's why it was totally offline that's why it was entirely without records on dns servers people were doing dns lookups for facebook that's why facebook.com went up for sale on certain auction houses or uh, on certain registrars not because facebook.com was unowned but because that registrar is looking at the dns servers and saying it looks like facebook.com doesn't exist anyway that's how that works so uh we are going to move down the outages come just hours 
after CBS's 60 Minutes aired a much-anticipated interview with Francis Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower who recently leaked a number of internal Facebook investigations showing the company knew its products were causing mass harm and that it uh, prioritized profits over taking Boulder Sips curtail abuse on its platform, including disinformation and hate speech, yada, yada, yada. This is an interesting thing here, too. Facebook's entire network went down. Their routing was down because the DNS, there was no DNS record of Facebook, right? So their routing was down entirely. There's an update on this. At 4.37 p.m., New York Times tweeted that Facebook employees told her uh, they were having trouble accessing Facebook buildings because their employee badges no longer worked. That could be one reason this outage has persisted so long. Facebook engineers may be having trouble physically accessing the computer servers needed to upload new uh, BGP records to the global internet. That's true. That, that's, that's, what, that's one of these things that occurred. Because the badges, the swipe access bad, RFID badges, the, the, the uh, scanner is connected to the internet. And the scanner goes through Facebook's network and looks at a database and says, okay, you're, this RFID is connected to this person We'll log that they're entering and we'll unlock the door. That's how that works. There was no local fallback on these scanners. So when someone went up to scan their thing, there's no, there's no internet there. <laughs> there's nothing for the scanner to talk to. So this could be two things. You know, I like to boil things down into options. Not always two options, but here there's two options. Option number one, we can take the cue from the fact that there is no local fallback for their swipe access and say that Facebook is a company that doesn't give a fuck about redundancy. We know already, and if you've listened to me long enough, you know that the network is held together with duct tape and bailing wire. There is no such thing as like a hardened network. There's no such thing as a network that is uh, <clears throat> good. <laughs> it's all barely holding together. And part of it is because some of these companies just aren't interested in building resilient networks. Part of it is because it's too expensive to do that. Part of it is because no one really knows how. Part of it is because there are people who know how, but they don't have the job. Part of it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a broad spectrum of issues that lead the internet to be a mess. Okay? So we can take the cue from the fact that there was no local fallback on the swipe access and say, okay, so they don't care about redundancy. They uploaded these changes <clears throat> to their to their servers, they uploaded these, uh, these BGP records, it broke the network, and now they're fucked. Innocent mistake. Or they did this on purpose. They broke the thing that they knew would shut down the entire operation. People were locked out of the company physically, and they took the opportunity to clean house. After that 60 Minutes interview, she, uh, Haugen is in, in Congress today giving testimony. Facebook breaks the thing that they knew would shut down the entire operation and lock the plebs out of the building. And some people somewhere took the opportunity to clean house. They got rid of records. They got rid of some of these internal studies that Haugen mentions. They got rid of some of this evidence that, that, that they're killing teenage girls. They, they did whatever they could <laughs> to clean house ahead of this SEC investigation, because there will be an investigation. I'm sure of that. That is a possibility here. And I checked with one of the people whom I speak to in order to double check myself when I feel like I might be going crazy, in order to double check myself when I feel like, ah, this could be, this is a little big. I should check with someone who's sane <laughs> to see if I've lost my mind. So I did that, texted my friend Ryan, and I said, do you think it's possible they did this on purpose, that they broke the one thing they knew, or not the one thing, I'm sure there are several single points of failure on their network, but they broke one of the things that they knew would shut down the entire network and close the campus physically and took the opportunity to clean house. And his response was, it's possible. <laughs> so, um, everything is sneaky up around Sneakyville. <laughs> I, I think there's, I personally it seems too perfect. Breaking something that locks people out of your building. Yeah, it, it seems too perfect to me. I think they could be cleaning house. That's what I personally think. It could be an innocent mistake because these companies, like I said, these networks are held together with duct tape and bailing wire. So it's, it's one of those things. There's many, many single points of failure. As, a, as an example, if you remember in 2016, Dyn DNS was flooded. DYN DNS was flooded 
and it shut down like half the internet. There was a DDoS attack on DNS servers at Dyn. And if you, if you look at a map of the internet, basically our reliance on single DNS servers has exploded since then. Like the, there's, that, that issue has not been fixed. So there are many single points of failure on the network. And, and, and again, this is a company that doesn't have local fallbacks on their swipe access. So maybe they just don't care about redundancy. Maybe they broke their own network. Possible. I suspect unlikely. <laughs> I suspect this was done on purpose so they could clean house. Personal opinion there. Just looking at things and, and seeing if, if I can make things make sense. That's it, though. That's all I've got for today. Uh, I need to change the outro, so you're not going to hear the regular outro. I want to thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for rating and reviewing on whatever platform that you listen on. Uh, visit us at Alternative Internet Radio, A-I-R-A-D dot I-O. You can listen to the show there. Uh, links to the show notes are in the description of the show. There's going to be links to all the stories that I talked about today. Maybe a couple of more that I think about. Uh, there's going to be a link to the Soho debate forum between Scott Horton, a Soho forum debate between Scott Horton and Bill Crystal, in which Scott Horton guts Bill Crystal like a fish. I'm still in a good mood after seeing it. Absolutely glorious. Yes, that Bill Crystal. Uh, you could tell Scott really cared about doing a good job, and he absolutely crushed it. Excellent job, Scott Horton. Thank you so much for doing that. Uh, I enjoyed it. I've sent, I've sent it to all my friends. Even those who might be neocons, I've said it to everybody. Uh, I, I, I need everybody to see you destroy this man. Excellent work, sir. Um, going to be a link to that in the show notes. There's going to be... Uh, oh, you can go and read some of the old blog posts at The Rogue File. I'm probably going to be doing, uh, you know, maybe... <sighs> I can't promise more than like two... A, I won't even promise two a year. But I'm, I might write some more stuff there. But there's some old blog posts there you might be interested in reading. Um, over there at the roguefile, roguefile.com. I, I don't suggest going to the subscribe star because I'm going to be shutting that down, but, uh, the, uh, Ethereum and Bitcoin links are still there. Uh, QR codes. Um, and don't go to cafe press either. I'm going to rebuild all that shit. I'm going to rebuild all that. Don't worry about that. Yeah. Go to roguefile.com slash donate. If you want to do Ethereum or, uh, or Bitcoin, I guess that's the thing to do. Uh, thank you all so much for listening and, uh, I'll see you next week.